ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. Hello and welcome to another podcast from your good friends at Books of the Year. When I say good friends, I'm aware that we've never met. Um, <laughs> well, and, I mean, there, there are going to be some people listening who we have met. So, yes. you know, I mean, but we're also, good friends there. It might be that some people would take against us. You know, we'd, we'd, yeah. we'd meet them in their house or they'd come around to your house <laughs> or we'd meet, you know, and they go, well, I don't want to be friends with you. So. Not really. Don't like your attic. It's a bit dirty. It's a bit of a negative start to the podcast, really. <laughs> and um, <laughs> that's not the way it's supposed to be. Anyway, we're very excited because Andy Weir is going to be on the show. Um, best-selling author of The Martian, what, which was, I, I remember year, years ago, Child 3, we're on holiday. Child 3 has found a copy of The Martian. I hadn't seen it before, and it was one of the self-published um, versions of it. And I've never seen him hooked into a book like he was hooked into The Martian. Wow. Yeah. And he, you know, he he hoovered the thing up and, you know, went on to sell 10 million copies or something like that. But, you know, he writes astonishing books. He's very engaging. He's along shortly. And uh, we've got some correspondence, Matt. Do you want to go first? Yes, I will. And there was quite a lot of interest in, uh, obviously, when we were talking about what or your your experiences at Warwick University and obviously Sarah Pierce as well, uh, who was on the podcast recently. And uh, Caton Jones says, 80s music was decadence if I remember correctly. Uh, Alison Walsh uh, said, as a former Tossle Flat occupant, I, I especially like this pod. Happy days. And uh, finally, HMS Valiant says, we all enjoyed listening to Simon on Raw 12.51am. Yes. would often delay our approach to Scapa Flow so that we could catch the last few minutes of the gossip column on Pajama Marmarama. Pajama Marmarama? Pajama Rama. This is because I did a late night show called Pajama Rama. And as I think I mentioned before, Warwick University Radio, which was at the time called W963, and it was also called Raw 12.51 a.m. We were taken off the air by the Ministry of Defense yes. because we were audible to submarines, even though we weren't audible to the rest of the campus. So thank you to HMS Valiant. Do you think you need to surface to download a podcast? <laughs> yes. I'm going to say... If you're down in the depths of Mariana's Trench, uh, then uh, then the Wi-Fi is going to be pretty dodgy. Uh, and and certainly your data is not going to be great either. So I'm going to say you do need to service in order to, to, to get, okay. your, get your podcast. 
We need a little bit of uh, HMS Valiant. If you could come back to us, please, Roger, Roger, 10-4. Um, do you have to surface in a submarine just to download the latest podcast? I'm sure that wouldn't be MOD approved. Really. <laughs> Excellent stuff, yes. And, and and then tell us how the nuclear nuclear weapons work. That would be great as well. Thanks very much. Yeah. So why so at a court martial you could say to the captain, <laughs> why did you surface at a time of international crisis with North Korea? He said, Well, because we needed to get the latest podcast from Books of the Year. Yes, we were we were running out of podcasts. Um we just thought it'd be a great idea. Thanks very much. Yeah. Books of the Year at yahoo.com. If you'd like to email, you can tweet us uh, at Books of the Year. Okay, now uh, this is a very special moment because on our Books of the Year podcast, we can welcome from, I mean, I know he's in America uh, <laughs> and I can see him and he's looking fit and fabulous. Hello, Andy Weir. How are you? Hello, Simon Mayo. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. And where are you, sir? I'm in Northern California, um, a small town called Saratoga. It's near San Jose, maybe an hour from San Francisco. Okay. Well, it's very nice to talk to you again. Uh, congratulations on another blockbuster book, which is called Project Hail Mary. Matt is now going to describe the cover. Matt, I don't, have you got a copy there? Yes, I have. Yes. And it's, it's action cover, isn't it? We've got, I mean, it's, it's a mainly black cover, but dominating the uh the center of the of the uh, uh of that front cover is an astronaut falling back into the sun how more action can you get than that astronaut falling into the sun and then project hail mary in big silver uh, bold letters, Andy Weir's name behind it, and then some endorsements from uh, Ernest Klein, who of course uh, did uh, Ready Player One, and uh, Tim Peake, our own astronaut. Um, yes, the multi-million best-selling author of The Martian. It's a it's a cover that's working hard for you, Andy, isn't it? I mean, it really it really is setting a fantastic tone because uh, <laughs> sometimes covers are slightly misleading, but you must be happy with this one. Yeah, yeah, it looks great. And uh, the the U.S. cover is very similar. Um, it's a similar theme, although for whatever reason, the the planet or star or abstract object in the background is is kind of yellow instead of red. I always think, not that I've been in an American airport for a while, obviously, that British covers are somehow better than American. I'm not. This isn't a flag waving <laughs> thing. Maybe it's a cultural thing, but they the American books they kind of look and feel incredibly different to the to the uk version hmm. well i think it's uh you know that's that's why you let the publisher the local publisher decide what the cover should look like because they know how to sell books to the to the people in their in their culture right absolutely right i think that counts as a very diplomatic answer uh, <laughs> yeah, well anyway listen uh, and it's, it's it's great to talk to you again uh i've enjoyed this book uh very much indeed take us into the world which i imagine you wrote you wrote this quite a long time ago but take us into this extraordinary world that you've created and introduce us to Ryland Grace. Well, um yeah, I finished it in I finished the book in January of 2020. So, a lot of people think there's like some correlation, like some symbolism with COVID or something in the book, but there isn't because I finished it before the pandemic really started. Um in this book, we follow uh Ryland Grace who is uh who wakes up aboard a spacecraft with no memory of who he is, why he's there, or what he's supposed to be doing. Over time, as his memories slowly come back to him, he comes to realize he's the sole survivor on a last-ditch effort mission to save humanity from an extinction-level event. 
So, you know, no pressure. Fine. Okay. Now, uh, if, if we stray too far into the, in, into the explanation, I'm sure you'll just tell us to back off. So, but, um, take us into what, what the problem is. It's this very striking opening. As you say, he, Ryland wakes up. He doesn't know what's going on. We don't know what's going on. What can you tell us about this stellar virus, which is infecting the sun? Um, yes, it's basically there is a, an alien life form, which is a single celled microbe. It's not intelligent or anything like that. And it has a, uh, um, it, it's the, we name it astrophage, which is Greek for uh, a thing that eats stars. It's basically uh, more like a mold or like an algae that grows on the surface of stars, similar to how algae grows in you know, near the surface of our oceans. Um, it, it, grows on the surface of a star and it spores itself. It collects a lot of energy and it uses that energy uh, to propel itself through interstellar distances to go seed itself to other stars. It's not intelligent. It doesn't have any sort of agenda or anything like that. It's just basically mold. Problem is it breeds wildly um, out of control. There's nothing to slow its population growth. So it's doubling its population um, at regular intervals, which means that after a while, our, our sun starts to dim and it gets to the point where they realize Earth has about 30 years before the sun dims so much that life on Earth won't be able to survive anymore because it's just not getting enough energy. And so that's the problem that, uh, that we encounter and that's the problem that we're trying to solve with uh, the Hail Mary mission, which is... Um, uh, basically, they see that all the stars in our local cluster and our neighborhood, just with astronomy, they can see that they are also dimming. So astrophage has also infected all of them, but not Tau Ceti, a star that's about 12 light years away, well within the area of all the infected stars. But for whatever reason, Tau Ceti itself isn't dimming at all. So they actually mount an interstellar mission using all the astrophage in our system as fuel um, to uh, to go find out what's going on at Tel City and see if we can duplicate it back in our system. So, Andy, you've already mentioned that uh, this was a book that you uh, obviously uh, completed well before the pandemic happened. Mm-hmm. However, reading the book, there are obviously there's the uh, there's the clear parallel of you know a, a planet in peril, but also I thought it's the uh, a planet or uh, all of these nation states pulling together. Now, we have seen over the last uh, year um, the planet pulling together as far as developing a vaccine is concerned. You know, the, mm-hmm. the previous record for developing a vaccine from start to finish was eight years for months, and they managed one for COVID-19 within within months. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, do, do, do you see a parallel there? And Because obviously, in, in your book, you have every the russians the chinese the the americans all pulling together to try and find a solution to this to what is an an existential crisis for 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 planet earth yeah um i mean there's obviously no deliberate parallel because i finished the book before covid mm. um but i mean you, you you could say well yeah there's some similarities between the book and what happened in the real world but the reason for that is um i guess i could say that my my high opinion of humanity is being validated a little bit during this COVID crisis. We are, you know, working together reasonably well. Not perfect, you know. We're not doing everything exactly right. But we are working together, and that's kind of a, a common theme in my books is that 
people, humans are very good at, at collaboration and cooperation, especially when faced with a common threat. So the listener, Andy, might be thinking, if this is such an international operation, how come it has an overtly Catholic title of Project Hail Mary. What's going on? How, how did they ever agree on that? Um, funny you should ask that. At the time I wrote it, uh, so I'm going to explain why it's called that. And um, the short answer is it's uh, an American slang expression. The slightly longer answer is it's a slang expression that I thought was uh, all throughout the English-speaking world, but I later discovered after the book was released that it's actually only used in the U.S., so to all of my other English-speaking uh, readers, I, I thought you'd know this expression, so I'll explain it. In American football, not the proper British football, but American football, um, you, there's a clock, and when the time runs out, the game's over. And um, if you're behind and you're going to lose the game when the clock runs out, and this is the last play of the game, oftentimes they will do this very long pass. They'll just throw the football all the way down the field in, in a last-ditch, desperate attempt to score a touchdown before the clock runs out. And that it has a very, very low chance of success because you're hurling the ball like 100 yards and, and you're hoping, just hoping, that one of your teammates will be there to catch it. And everybody just runs way downfield and does that. That play is called a Hail Mary pass and in American football slang. So it just means basically you're throwing the ball really hard and praying. That's why it's called a Hail Mary. So in Project Hail Mary, it's it, the name of the ship isn't about the, you know, the Catholic prayer. It's about this last-ditch desperate attempt to save uh, the game. Of course, it's an American football expression, so I should have realized that it would be you know, not as well known outside the U.S., but I thought maybe other sports also used it. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, let me just check Matt, because uh, Matt's a, sp a sports guy. That's what, uh, yeah. that's what you spend a lot of time doing, Matt. Have you, uh, do, you know, do you know this so expression? I, do you think it's known outside of American football? I, I do know that. And I do, uh, I'll be honest, I know it from movies. So I know, you know, let's try a Hail Mary. I, know, I, I knew that from, from, from watching movies. I, th I guess the equivalent in our football would be route one, wouldn't it? It would just be, let's go route one. We've got two minutes and we're trailing one nil. Let's just go route one. Get it in the mixer, as we would say. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's what Hail Mary means to me. So the implication, Andy, is last chance saloon. You know, the, yeah. the, the odds are stacked against you here. You know when, you're, uh, when your goalkeeper runs up and starts playing offense? It's like that. There you go. There you go. <laughs> route one. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. So, uh, uh, again, I don't want to to go too far in, in, into the story, um, but I always think, you know, if you're talking about a movie, what's in the first reel, this is old-fashioned terminology, again, is okay. Can you, can you tell us anything about who Ryland, once he's up there in space and he's kind of worked out what he's there for, who he communicates with. Can you tell us that? Um, yeah. Uh, so the story is told uh, in, in in two time frames. There's the present where Ryland is aboard the spacecraft, and then there's uh, flashbacks as his memory returns to him. Um, and um, I am a huge hypocrite. I just need to announce this now. Um, I always tell writers, I tell everybody, don't use flashbacks. It's a <laughs> it's a 
cheesy way of telling a story. It's a lazy form of narration. You shouldn't do it. If you do it, you should feel bad. So anyway, this book is full of flashbacks. And the reason is because I couldn't really tell this story any other way without it being really odd. Um, all the stuff that happens on Earth before the Hail Mary, that's the name of the ship, is launched, um, uh, takes place over the course of five or six years and the only relevant parts would require me to tell the story by skimming over time like a rock on a lake. It would just be like, okay, here's a scene. Then next thing you know, boom, next scene is like two years later. And it would just give the reader whiplash. And then once the ship is launched, you'd never see any of those characters ever again, right? And so it would just be such a disjoint reading experience. So instead, by having it be flashbacks and an unfolding mystery, I get to exposition those earlier segments and hopefully not be a boring aside. Like, that's one thing I hate about flashbacks when I'm reading them is I'm really invested in the story. And then all of a sudden, we're going to have a flashback to show how the main character met his wife or something. And it's like having your mom call you in to clean your room when you're out playing with your friends. You're like, I don't want to do this. I want to... So... Uh, for the flashbacks, there's an unfolding mystery of exactly what astrophage is, how it works, how they built the Hail Mary, all the other things, how Ryland ended up on the mission. And to get back to Simon's actual question, rather than my <laughs> incoherent rambling, um, Ryland is a um, – he comes to remember that he was once in academia – He's a, a molecular biologist who um, specialized in, in uh, speculative xenobiology. In other words, coming up with ideas on how alien life could exist. What other, what other processes could lead to life that can reproduce in a complete second genesis unrelated to Earth? And he wrote a paper um, where he challenged the assumption that water, liquid water, is necessary for life. And um, he was also really belligerent in that paper. He was saying everyone who thinks that water is required and that the Goldilocks zone exists is, is stupid, basically. And he basically got um, kind of uh, ostracized from the scientific community. Then he went into being a middle school teacher, uh, and he loved that. And so he was an unhappy person until he found his true calling of teaching. And then he really enjoyed that. Now, this causes him with his amnesia to say, like, how did I go from being a teacher to being an astronaut? Because I'm not an astronaut as far as I can tell. And so he's uh, that's an unfolding mystery as well. Yeah. But the question was actually... Oh, dear. <laughs> I think you'll find. I mean, come on, Andy. I, <laughs> you know. you can, that's all going to get cut, isn't it? Everything I just said. <laughs> Once he's actually out there, he's worked out a little bit about who he is. Who is it who he's communicating with? That, it's that bit. Oh, you want to talk about what happens once yeah. he's there? Yeah, but say, uh, okay. if that's too far, then you say back off. Well, I don't want to say back off. It's a huge part of the book, but it is a major spoiler. So okay. I would advise all of you to uh, anyone listening who doesn't want a spoiler for the book to just, uh, you know, stop now and come back and pick it up later. But of course, listen to all the advertisements. I mean, you got to do that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the, 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 the astrophage, which you've been talking about, is. Is so fascinating. I mean, it's very much an Andy Weir kind of creation, it seems to me, uh, coming at it from from the outside. Did that arrive fully formed, Andy? Did it? Did that uh, 
virus, that life form, the energy force, whatever you want to call it, did had you always been wanting to write about something like this? Um, not quite. I had in mind originally, well, for some time I've had this notion in my head of uh, a fictional substance called black matter is what I called it, which basically is a technology like an alien technology that absorbs all electromagnetic radiation and turns it into mass in the form of black matter. And later you can turn black matter back into light by hitting it with an appropriate magnetic field or something. And then if you had that technology, you could have a space, you know, spacecraft that could do interstellar travel. You could have you going to Mars and back would be trivial. You know, I mean, with a few hundred kilograms of fuel, you could do it easily. Um, and so I was thinking about that, and I thought, okay, well, if I wanted to write a story where we have that technology, how do we get it? There's, you know, we're centuries away from, maybe more away from inventing anything like that. So I thought, well, what if it's an alien technology that we find? Well, then I got to explain where those advanced aliens are and why they're not around and stuff like that. Then I thought, well, hmm, this is interesting. Black matter is basically something that takes energy and makes more black matter. That sounds like life, right? I mean, that's what we do. We take energy and make people out of it. So um, I thought, okay, what if instead of this highly advanced alien um, technology. What if it's a naturally evolved life form? And that's where I started coming up with the idea of astrophage, as 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 it is in the book. And then I got to thinking, oh, let's see, we got a hold of some of this, and then we could start farming it, using it for interplanetary travel and fun stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, right, but of course we'd have to be real careful not to let any of it get into our sun because that'd be a disaster. And it's like a couple of beats go by, and I'm like, wait a minute, that's that's the book. That's the book, of course. It gets into the sun, and that is the disaster, and they have to stave it off, and there we go. It is, and it's part of that that really makes the book work, um, Andy. And as, as Simon's already said, this is this is clearly an Andy Weir um, <laughs> creation because um, I was a big fan of, of The Martian. Of course, we interviewed you for uh, for Artemis as well. I'm going to make a comparison. You'll have done uh, tons of interviews, I don't doubt, um, um, to promote this book. I'm going to make a comparison that I will place all the money in my pocket you've not had a question about so far. All right. And that is, I'm going to compare this to, and I, again, there is, I, I can spot a TARDIS just over your left shoulder. Right so there? Can, oh, well. So, yeah, yes. yes, there you go. Your, there you your go. listeners right. can't see it, but uh, yes, see, yeah. I do have a TARDIS. I'm a huge Doctor Who fan. Okay, uh, which I... So the comparison I'm going to make is is to a British TV show, but it's not it's not a, a sci-fi show. It's a show that has been huge over here, particularly in the last few weeks, and that is um, a show called Line of Duty. Now that obviously has nothing oh, yeah. to do with sci-fi. Okay, so you know Line of Duty. That's good. Line of Duty deals with police corruption and also does not um, does not pander to the audience at all. In other words, it uses a, quite a lot of acronyms that uh, you really need to be on your toes with, like OCG and Cheers and things like that. So you you basically, you cannot, you cannot drop your attention for a moment because you won't know what's going on. And it, and it, that, that, that essence of Line of Duty, I see in your book as well, in that you are going to have to pay attention. And bluntly, there is going to be elements of, um, of, of science that you're going to need to, you're, you're going to, find yourself following along with, but it's going to take a little bit of effort on your part. The reason why you're prepared to invest that effort is because of the characters and, bluntly, the humour. 
that's 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 so that runs like through a stick of rock through your books. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, yeah, hopefully it's not too much work for people to follow the science. That's like the biggest challenge in my particular style of writing is okay. I've got a bunch of science that I need to explain to the reader. I try to say like okay. I, I just want to explain the minimum amount of science so that they can understand the plot events that are happening. And I have to, it has to not read like a Wikipedia article, right? It has to be entertaining and come out organically if possible. And yeah, and as you say, I, I've i discovered that humor is the top secret thing that only me and a million other authors know that um, the the reader will forgive you any amount of exposition if you make it funny. That balance, Andy, between plot and, and science, is that in, do you have a conversation with your editor where your editor says, back off here, we could do with some more there? Or do you just write the science the way you want to write it? Well, um, a bit of both, I'd say. I mean, uh, uh, you know, on my first draft, I just write it the way I want to write it. I, I, and I'm always I'm very conscious of like, okay, don't drone on and on and bore the reader to tears. Even though it's interesting to you, doesn't mean it's interesting to them. And um, but and and my editor absolutely will say like, I mean, it's not in lots of places. Usually, I get I get a reasonably good balance, at least as far as my editor is concerned. But he will definitely say like, okay, you went on a bit long in this description here. Maybe tighten it up. And over here, this other thing, I. I I still didn't understand it, so maybe you could uh, change your wording or something, make it a little more clear how this works. Am I right in saying that the uh, the movie rights are uh, are gone? Ryan Gosling is positioning himself to be um, that makes him sound greedy. I didn't mean that. Um, <laughs> that sneaky that, Ryan Gosling. That, yeah, dastardly, dastardly uh, Ryan Gosling. Because I because I would have thought after watching First Man he'd had it with space you know he <laughs> he clearly wasn't having a good time on Apollo eleven so but it, it, it is all of, is all of that true Andy um, yes so the film rights have been sold to MGM and they bought them outright which is nice for me it, it implies that they're taking it more seriously than a typical film project which is nice because you never know with Hollywood. Um, you just have to cross your fingers and hope they greenlight it. Ryan Gosling is attached to play Ryland Grace, which is awesome because they have the same initials. Maybe he can bring <laughs> his cufflinks to set. I don't know. And um, then we have Phil Lord and Chris Miller, the directing duo. Uh, they're they're set to direct. And we have Drew Goddard working on the screenplay right now. Uh, and Drew Goddard is the, the very talented writer who did the adaptation of The Martian. Um, so we like him. Um, yeah, so things are... Humming along nicely, uh, we have ILM, Industrial Light Magic, working on designs for Rocky, um, which is a character in the story. <laughs> yeah. That'll be very interesting. Um, yeah, uh, we can just hope that it gets greenlighted. And a- as for Ryan, he's very excited uh, about the idea of being able to play a character that actually shows emotions. Lately, he's been cast in a bunch of things where he's primary acting note is you know stop showing emotion you know where he's like neil armstrong was a famously stoic man and so in playing him i mean i think ryan did a fantastic job but neil armstrong himself very stoic didn't show emotion very much and also you know before that he was in the blade runner movie where he's like never shows emotion because that's his character and so on so this time he gets to actually be an emotional guy and have highs and lows and ups and downs and i think he's looking forward to it yeah can i just ask you a bit more about optimism mm. because 
Uh, I mean, Matt's already mentioned it, and you've, you've been talking about it, maybe in terms of vaccines and international cooperation uh, and so on. But a lot of sci-fi has often been quite bleak uh, and nihilistic. Um, but I wonder if there is, uh, you know, some, I don't know wh- where, you, maybe you're an optimistic person anyway, Andy, I don't know, but it, th- this book and, and and your others, and maybe it's the humour, they just feel as though there's a sense of positivity which others might not include, feel inclined to include. Um, yeah, I think that's definitely fair. I, I am, I mean, I don't, walk around all day, like, you know, skipping through the tulips and stuff like that. But I do have a fairly high opinion of humanity as a whole. I think we're a very good, very cooperative species and we're good at working together. I mean, if somebody breaks their leg and a total stranger helps them get to a hospital, that doesn't even make the news because it's just assumed human behavior. If they don't help, then that's newsworthy. So that's just how cooperative we are at our core. So yeah, I'm optimistic about humanity. I also think that um, I'm, I'm a little annoyed that sci-fi has kind of been hijacked by these bleak dystopian misery scapes of fascist governments that are only teenagers doing weird stuff can seem to topple. And I, I don't know. I don't like dystopia. So when you, when you, when you look at the, the billionaires who are dominating the space race, in America, does that still make you optimistic? Well, yeah, because they're billionaires dominating the space race rather than just billionaires hoarding money and chilling at home. Like you got Elon Musk and uh, and um, and uh, Jeff Bezos and stuff. They're, I mean, they're sinking money into trying to make space travel happen. They don't have to do that. Musk could concentrate on Tesla, which makes a bunch of money. And I think Bezos is doing just fine with Amazon. Neither of them have to do this. This is like following a dream of advancing us into the space age. I think that's awesome. I I was reading an interview with you at the weekend, Andy, and you have this theory. And I'm wondering if you can just give it to our listeners because I I found it encouraging. So we've all had a terrible year. Uh, It's been, you know... uh, extraordinary but you think i certainly read that you said that this is be that this will be the last pandemic that the world ever faces that's right that's so, my that's my prediction i think i think covid-19 is humanity's last true pandemic because just just the technology that we've developed to fight covid-19 alone is would stop will stop the next would be pandemic in its tracks. It's no longer the case where it'll take months and months or years to develop a vaccine. It it'll take now with with mRNA technology that um, that it takes weeks. That's it. So imagine if we had functional viable vaccines for COVID nineteen back in January of twenty twenty, the pandemic wouldn't have gotten anywhere near to what it is now, and it. it, it People would get vaccinated faster than it could spread, and there would be no pandemic. It would just be a disease that we nipped in the bud. And so I think part it's it's amazing. People don't really understand the magnitude of what happened in the scientific community in response to COVID. It's not just, oh, they got good at making a vaccine. The medical community invented a new technology of vaccine generation to combat COVID-19, and it worked. It's it's amazing. It's like 
<laughs> it, it, it's just incredible. It's it, it's as big a, a level of invention as antibiotics were back when they were first invented. I mean, it's that level. And now also we have um, a few other things going for us. I believe that within 50 years, 60 years, our technology will be so good that we can probably just um, make an antidote or a vaccine for any virus we get. Like, uh, I think that we'll be nearly perfect at that within a few decades. And so the only time that a pandemic really has a chance to hop in there and get its get its uh, get its damage in would be in those next 50 years. And now all of us in the world have a pandemic under our belts. We, it's in living memory. We know how to act. We know what to do. We wouldn't be as sloppy or uh, as disorganized as we were this time. And even though, and I'm not saying we were that disorganized, we we're we're not perfect, but boy, we we responded to it well, in my opinion. So I think that the combination of a pandemic being in living memory for the next 50 years, plus the advancements we're going to see in medical technology over the next 50 years, means that COVID-19 is the last hurrah for pandemics in the human population. Unless one comes from space. Well, yes, astrophage doesn't infect humans. <laughs> so everything will be fine. Uh, Andy, do you know? Do you know what you're going to be working on next? Do you have ideas that happen all the time, and you compartmentalize them and get to work on them once you've finished, or does do you do you run a bunch of projects all at the same time? I tend to meander from one project to another until one of them really starts grabbing me, and then I write that. Um, so I don't talk about what I'm working on until I'm sure it's going to be my next book, and I'm not at that stage yet. But I have three or four things that I'm working on. Generally, what I'll do is I'll write chapter one of each idea, see how it feels, and then kind of think about what the long-term plot lines are for them and so on. It's the process of development. I don't just get struck by lightning with a wonderful idea that I just like write to fruition. I, I, I have to... Uh, kiss a lot of frogs before I find my prince. <laughs> uh, Andy Weir's latest book is Project Hail Mary. Um, uh, it's it's a terrific read. There'll be more with uh, Andy on this podcast um, where he's going to do our Q&A, which will be uh, available as well. Uh, but for the moment, Andy, thank you very much. We appreciate you spending some time with us. Thanks so much for having me. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Christopher Kimball, host of Milk Street Radio. If you'd like to change the way you cook and also think about food, please check out the Milk Street podcast. We travel around the world to find pizza in Tokyo, Egyptian food in Berlin, and Bhutanese farmers in Vermont. We speak to Jamie Oliver, Rachel Ray, Al Roker, Ina Garten, as well as Michael Twitty, Marcus Samuelson, and Alice Waters. And we'll introduce you to recipes that will change the way you cook, from bright pink Tottenham cake to Afghan dumplings to shoyu sugar steak, and that one is direct from Hawaii. It's a whole new world of food right here on Milk Street Radio. Please check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts, or go to 177milkstreet.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.